From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. This show is devoted to the idea of doubt, its costs and benefits. America runs on the casting of doubt. Doubt over global warming. Doubt over the veracity of the Congressional Budget Office, in the nation's intelligence agencies, in the honesty of all the engines of accountability, including the mainstream media, and lately, over the functioning of democracy itself. Here's Chris Kobach, the Kansas Secretary of State and Vice Chairman of Trump's Advisory Council on Election Integrity. Wednesday on MSNBC. Again, you think that maybe Hillary Clinton did not win the popular vote? We may never know the answer to that question. How do you say we may never know the answer to that question? Really? The votes for Donald Trump that led him to win the election in doubt as well? Absolutely. It can be awfully hard to unsow the seeds of doubt. Doubt and denial, even in the face of hard evidence, is often the easiest course, especially when it comports with your worldview. In fact, studies have shown the existence of a backfire effect, whereby people actually double down on their false ideas when they're confronted with irrefutable facts. I learned this in 2010 when I spoke to Brendan Nyhan, professor of government at Dartmouth College and one of the researchers behind the discovery of the backfire effect. My co-author, Jason Reifler, and I looked at can the media effectively correct misperceptions, which seems like a simple question, but no one had really tested that scientifically. And you found actually that when people had their misperceptions challenged, certain people at least were more likely to become more firmly entrenched in that belief. That's right. People were so successful at bringing to mind reasons that the correction was wrong, they actually ended up being more convinced in the misperception than the people who didn't receive the correction. So the correction, in other words, was making things worse. The backfire effect, a delicious paradox, and now, sadly, subject to its own correction. Do I really have to let it go? Brendan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you, we have been talking about this for years. I even quoted you in my book, cited your research that a group of Republican volunteers, when shown evidence that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, doubled down on their beliefs. But recently you've had your own views challenged. You were presented with the work of other researchers who found much less evidence of the backfire effect across a wider range of factual questions and in fact found that evidence tended to move people in the direction of accuracy. That's right. They found giving people factual information did tend to improve the accuracy of their beliefs. They found little evidence of a backfire effect, which is encouraging. So my co-author Jason Reifler and I did the original backfire effect study. We joined up with Ethan Porter and Thomas Wood to do a study together to try to continue to move the field forward using a set of research designs that we all agreed would be a good test of the hypotheses of interest in this case. What effect would corrective information have during the 2016 campaign when partisan-motivated reasoning might have been at its high pitch? So you took misstatements by Donald Trump, one during his convention speech and one during the first presidential debate as a test case. That's right. And we wanted to see what would happen if we gave people corrective information. In the convention speech, we were interested in the suggestion that crime rates were increasing. There was a small uptick 
in the data that came out soon before the Republican convention, which Trump leveraged to suggest this epidemic of violent crime, which didn't really exist. We were actually in a long-term trend of decreasing violent crime rates in the United States. And we wanted to see what happened if people were given evidence about the longer-term decline in violent crime that we'd seen. Let me start with the good news. We found that telling people that violent crime was actually down over the long term increased the accuracy of people's beliefs. They were less likely to think that violent crime was increasing in the long term, including among Trump supporters. So in other words, that corrective information didn't backfire. Trump supporters did not double down on his suggestions of this violent crime epidemic. Okay, so that was the good news. The bad news is that exposure to that corrective information didn't change how favorable they felt towards Trump, which is what you might hope if fact-checking posed a significant reputational risk to the politicians who were making false claims. So the suggestion is they just don't care that their favorite candidate plays fast and loose with the truth. By the time we conducted our study in the summer of 2016, it was hard for anybody to pretend that everything Donald Trump said was perfectly factually accurate. I'm still wondering, do you have to carve out an exception for Trump? I don't think we need to carve out an exception for Trump. It's just we should take into account the extent to which people already had well-formed views of him. So if you're trying to think about why people might accept that he was making false claims, well, the pattern of that had become overwhelming by the time of the study. If you're trying to think about why people wouldn't change their opinion of him, people had very strong fixed opinions of him relative to other people in politics. It may be the case that we can change people's minds about facts, but they don't change their minds in the way we expect about the politician in question or the issue in question or even the behavior in question. Well, there is a recent example on a national scale of minds that may have been changed. This week we saw the collapse of the Senate's attempt to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. According to an NPR-PBS NewsHour Marist poll from the end of June, only 17% of Americans approved of the Senate Republican replacement. Pretty striking when there was... A time not that long ago when support for Obamacare had dipped below 50 percent. I think healthcare is a very instructive example. One of the things that researchers have been trying to figure out is when will reality break through for people in a way that registers even when there are strong partisan filters. And what we saw in healthcare was people seemed to be reacting to the bill in a way that didn't break neatly along partisan lines. Compare that case, for instance, with Russia, where the issues are much more abstract, have less to do with people's lives, and the personal stakes are lower. That looks much more like the partisan divide in this country and the divide over Donald Trump. It's hard to study how facts change beliefs over time, isn't it? It's very difficult. Our findings were quite encouraging about the immediate effect of corrective information. It seemed to make people's beliefs more accurate. But when we look in the long term at public opinion polls, asking people, do you think there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? Or was Barack Obama born in this country? We don't see corrective information registering in the same way. Those beliefs often are quite resilient. The effect of this information may briefly register and then disappear over time, as we saw after the release of President Obama's long-form birth certificate, for instance. There's one thing that I've seen repeated over and over again If the fact check comes from the same side as the person who told the lie, then you've got a really potent and highly credible source. The need for sources who seem to be acting against their political interests Mm -hmm. is something that's come out of recent research by Adam Berinsky at MIT, among others. 
those speakers may be especially credible to audiences that would otherwise be skeptical. When you see a Republican speaking out saying that something Donald Trump said is untrue, that may cause you to update your beliefs more than if you heard that from a Democrat who always says that everything Trump claims is wrong. Reporters should try to invest the effort to find those especially credible sources when they can. It's a partisan world out there. There aren't as many people as we'd like who will speak out against their side. But if we can find them, they can be great messengers. You know, this brings me back to the process that you underwent with the people who found contradictory information. Despite the fact that you've made hay of the backfire effect for quite some time, you were not inclined to double down. I'm trying to practice what I preach, Brooke, as best I can. It would be a terrible irony if evidence contradicting the backfire effect provoked me into doubling down on the backfire effect. You could have created one of those famous scientific feuds. Aren't they more typical than what you did? Unfortunately, they do happen a lot. I think if you talk to anyone in any academic field, they can tell you about years or decades-long feuds between competing research camps. I hope that our study can be one tiny contribution towards a more constructive approach to resolving conflicting findings and moving scientific knowledge forward. How has this process of being challenged, of going back into the research, perhaps changed your process? Where is it taking you? It's really exciting for me. If I was just banging the drum on the backfire effect for the next 20 years, I would be a bored, bored professor. Um, I, I want challenge. Doubt is fundamental to the scientific process. If you don't doubt your own findings, you're not doing science. It's healthy for all of us to call our beliefs into question. And that's obviously not something that our political system in particular is encouraging or rewarding right now. It's difficult, of course, to doubt yourself. But hopefully I'm a better researcher and person for it. And, and again, this is great for the world. Brendan, thank you very much. My pleasure. Brendan Nyhan is a professor of government at Dartmouth College. Coming up, more dubious science, doubting scientists, and the promise of more certainty down the road. This is On the Media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. The relentless pursuit of truth is the guiding spirit of the scientific method. That's why a series of failures to replicate the findings of several classic studies in behavioral science led to a crisis of confidence and conscience. 
Uli Shimak, professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, is a leading watchdog in the effort to identify and discourage unethical research practices. He began scrutinizing research behind psychology's landmark theories after a shakeup in 2011. In 2011, a very controversial article was published in a top journal by a famous social psychologist, Daryl Bem, who made his name in the 1970s. And this article claimed that people have the ability to foresee future events that haven't even happened and demonstrated this in 10 studies with nine studies showing successfully this amazing ability. So in one study, people were shown erotic pictures They had to guess where the picture would appear. And according to the results, people could foresee at an above chance probability where the picture would appear before the computer even randomly generated the location of the picture. A lot of psychologists experienced what we call dissonance, like a conflict. Either I have to believe this phenomenon, given all this evidence, or I have to question the scientific method that led to these findings. And that led to the uncomfortable conclusion that maybe many other findings that were presented with similar strong evidence might be also questionable. And when some researchers tried to replicate Bem's findings and failed to support his claims, people became very concerned. Right. Somehow his evidence was very strong, but others couldn't replicate it. So we have to explain that. The problem is that people use what we call questionable research practices. They use statistical methods in a liberal, flexible way. And that increases the chance of getting these successes. And for a long time, those methods were known that they were being used, but it was considered like speeding only 10 miles over the speed limit. You know, people do this once in a while, a little bit. But since 2011, it has become apparent that really people are speeding at 50 miles over the speed limit in reckless ways. And many of those findings are not replicable and are polluting basically the scientific record and the theories that we're trying to build on to understand human behavior. And so ultimately, your frustration with BEM's paper led you to develop the R-index, the replication index? which you've called a doping test for science. If you have the highest rank, which is one, it means the study can be replicated easily. It was well-designed, and the data was expressed clearly and honestly. A low R-index of, say, 0.1 or 0.35 means a researcher inflated his or her results, and the study will be hard to replicate. How does it work? The basic principle is that we can actually make predictions about the success rate that a researcher should have using the exact numbers that are reported in that article that claims to have all the success, and then we're seeing what the actual success rate is. And what we typically often find is that the actual success rate is much higher than the expected success rate. You're finding that the published success rate is higher than... Than what we would expect. Mm -hmm. So how do you know how a study is supposed to turn out? Well, yeah, without going too much into the statistical details. Oh, you can. I have a PhD from MIT. It's okay. Okay. No, I don't. I'm totally lying about that. (laughs) (laughs) But basically, the chance to get a successful result in a study is based on two main things. How strong is the effect? So to notice, for example, that men are taller than women, you don't need a big sample. You know, you can see that pretty quickly. 
or you need a large sample. So if you have a small effect, you need samples of 1,000 people or 2,000 people. So given that researchers publish actually information about their sample sizes and effect sizes, it's possible to get an estimate of what the success rate should be. And then we can compare that by just looking at the one that we're actually observing in the journals, which is over 95% success rate. Wow. To get accepted into a top journal, you have to present only successful studies. Typically, the studies don't have the effect sizes or the sample sizes to warrant these high success rates. Let's say a researcher's data supports his hypothesis one out of three times. They might just focus on the outcomes that fit their hypothesis, or they might change their hypothesis to fit the data. Right. How do you know that your index works? (laughs) Nowadays, a lot of researchers use simulations. We're just simulating scenarios, and we have demonstrated in simulation that the index performs well under typical scenarios that you would encounter in the literature. There are all kinds of psychological theories that have been thrown into question lately. Here's one that you might hear from a science writer or in a TED Talk. You've probably heard that, that when you smile, it can make you feel happy. Can it really smile it make can you also happy? make you seem creepy, but... True. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. the part that makes yeah. me happy. <laughs> so... If I smile, I'll feel happier? This is a classic theory. And in the 1970s and then 1980s, some experimental studies you know, manipulated people's facial expressions. And the studies suggested that it made people rate cartoons as funnier and they felt more amused. Mm-hmm. And this became a textbook finding until last year. Some researchers had a big effort to replicate this study in close to 20 different laboratories none of those laboratories could actually reproduce a finding. And what we did then is to go back to the literature and we find massive evidence for selection bias that there must have been many studies that didn't work out, that weren't published, and so on. Your most famous R-index check involved the 2011 bestseller by Nobel laureate Danny Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. Describe what priming is and how do psychologists feel about those landmark studies now? Priming is the idea that our mind works by association. And so even little things in our environment might suddenly trigger an association and alter our behavior. And this might even happen outside of awareness. Studies claim that just seeing the word professor would make people form better on some intelligence tests. A few words might change for a while your response on issues of race, on issues of finance, basically anything. It's been applied across the board. It's really quite an important theory. Right. So we went back to the actual research articles on which the chapter was based. And individually, out of, I think, the 30 studies there, 29 already individually showed a red flag with the R-index. It showed that basically there's no credible evidence that substantiates, you know, the broader theoretical claims about priming effects. Why is it so important that we mitigate this replication crisis? Well, I became a psychologist because I wanted to understand human behavior and thought and feelings. But if we're not using the scientific method appropriately and we just in the end pick hypotheses that we like or that are popular 
amongst our peers, and then we just find confirming evidence for it, then we're not doing the service that psychology should be doing. What the field is looking right now to do is to see how can we improve things. Like making all the data available, publishing what your hypotheses are to begin with so people can compare them with the conclusions that you draw. The top journal in uh, psychology uh, started having badges for sharing your data or for pre-registration. It sends a signal that this research is more credible, more trustworthy, and will create some incentive to do so. The crisis has created a sense of doubt because, you know, now we doubt a lot of what happened in the past. But I think all the new initiatives will reduce doubt because we can actually trust what is being published. Uli, thank you very much. Okay, great. Bye. Uli Shimek is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and the creator of the Replication Index blog. It's no fun when you're in the business of explaining the world and you find out that you have big, fat gaps in your own understanding. For instance, the 2016 election inspired a freakout in journalism when many of us realized how entrenched we really were in our own political echo chambers. Well, it turns out that there was a similar reaction in the field of social psychology, where much of the research about voter behavior flopped. There's a number of ideas that came to my mind thinking about where we went wrong or what our blind spots were. So, like many labs, I started scrambling. Jay Van Bavel is director of the Social Perception and Evaluation Lab at New York University. He studies group identities and political beliefs, and now he's reflecting on the field itself, which is populated with researchers, journal editors, peer reviewers, and especially the student research subjects who largely conform to a stereotype of coastal elites. Can the study of identity and belief be contaminated by the identity and belief of the people in the process? That would be weird. Weird stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And what that means is we learn how to persuade those types of people. And so psychologists have pointed out that our samples are only capturing a subset of human experience. If you're looking at people's group identities and how they want to invest their time socially versus on academics, those are going to vary a lot. And so if I do a study with NYU undergraduates, it turns out that NYU undergraduates are off the charts in their need for being distinctive and standing out and being different. When I was doing research at Ohio State University, the student body is quite a bit different. It's a public school. Students there want to fit in. When you walk around campus there, everybody's wearing an Ohio State Buckeyes t-shirt or jersey. Certain research that we do in, in one context won't hold up in another. All right, now, I am scared to death to ask this question. Unless I'm missing something, does this mean that the mind of a weird subject, to use the acronym, works differently than the mind of a less affluent, less educated resident of a red state far from the coasts? A huge component of our mental life is going to be common. We're going to perceive colors in similar ways and have some of the same fundamental needs. But we're going to have different motives, different norms, and these manifest in how we behave in our day-to-day -day lives. That's being all driven by differences in the mind. 
that gets in some scary territory. If differences in values reflect differences in cognition. Yeah, there's differences between the left and right in terms of basic values. You know, concerns for authority and loyalty, group loyalty, differ between the left and the right on average. And which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Do different mechanisms of cognition determine our politics, or do our politics inform how we process the outside world? So I'll tell you this. To me, this was like mind-blowing data when I saw it for the first time. Something like 40% of our political preferences are explained by genetics. So identical twins have more in common in terms of their politics than uh, non-identical twins. There was a big study that came out of England a couple years ago scanning the brain structures of liberals and conservatives, and they found that there were some key differences. Conservatives had larger gray matter volume density in their amygdala, a region of the brain that's involved in emotional processing. Liberals had larger gray matter volume density in the anterior cingulate cortex, a region of the brain that's involved in conflict monitoring and, and control. Certainly, there's not a simple explanation for what these brain structure differences mean, but it suggests that there are some deep differences. But it's not just the research subjects. The whole social science racket is infected by liberalism. So there are some psychologists who've argued that in social psychology, there's an overwhelming number of liberals as faculty and graduate students. What they're arguing is that by having a lot of liberal faculty, we are going to be more receptive to liberal ideas. We're going to want to publish papers that have liberal conclusions. And we might even go easier on those papers. So if you submit a paper to me, I might be more likely to accept it because it comports with my worldview. To my knowledge, there is no good evidence that that's the case. My lab is actually doing a study right now to try to test that. We've taken 200 studies where other groups have come along later and tried to replicate them to see if those same effects hold in other situations, in other labs. And we're going to be able to identify just exactly what percentage of studies have some degree of liberal or conservative slant, and then whether that slant makes them less robust in the future. I don't see that it matters a whole lot whether the subjects of any particular piece of social science is political in some way. It's what the norms of values and the norms of response are deemed to be. Maybe what the liberal researchers and their liberal subjects are accepting as norms do not apply across the board. Doesn't that kind of predetermine the results? So I think I take your point. When scientists are constructing and designing studies, they could ask certain questions and neglect to ask others. And that might increase the likelihood of a certain set of conclusions. There's no question that those types of things can seep into research. The question is whether that is actually happening in a way that we can measure. And a lot of times the criticisms are anecdotal. It's easy to find one or two papers that you don't like that you think have an ideological bent. And I can develop a story that, you know, it's friends of the editor over here, or these people have this theoretical axe to grind, but they get all their friends to review it over here. We're humans, so science is done by humans. Two things. The first is that we have a system for rooting those out and for evaluating them. And the second thing is there is a reward structure for being an iconoclast in science. So if you rise to the top of the field based on your theory, 
and you've been supported by, you know, a number of people who are your acolytes or share your belief system. If I find a flaw in your theory and you've made a big name of yourself, suddenly there's a huge reward structure for me criticizing what everybody else takes as a dominant theory. And so that is in part how science builds on itself. For example, there's a lot of research suggesting that conservatives were more biased against certain minority groups. Some papers have recently come out suggesting that liberals are just as biased if it's an ideological outgroup. That research also suggests maybe one of the reasons, for example, that conservatives are biased against African Americans might be in part because they know that group is not going to vote for their political interests. And so what that suggests is that there might be some equivalence between the left and right in terms of outgroup bias. Those critical papers that are recent ended up in top, top journals because they were taking on a idea that had sunk in. You know, now there's other questions. Are those the best studies for that topic? And to me, that's just how science works. Jay, I must ask you one last thing. This conversation is almost destined to fly across right-wing media as the smoking gun. Aha, <laughs> there is this scientist and this liberal radio host confessing that their work is infused with the most sinister and structural liberal bias. Does that make you hesitant to do the work you do? Yeah, I told all my students when we started this project that someone's going to hate us no matter what the results are. <laughs> but to me, the question's too important to ignore. And we're following the strictest procedures scientifically, writing down all our hypotheses and how we're going to analyze it before we touch the data. And we're not coding it. We're paying people outside our lab to code it. So we're going to do the most strictest scientific test and... We're going to let the chips fall where they may, and here's the thing, and this is why science is great. If there is bias, it will start a conversation about how to get rid of it. We can identify our own biases and then design new strategies and ways of doing work to get rid of them. Jay, thank you very much. Okay, thank you for having me. Jay Van Bavel is director of the Social Perception and Evaluation Lab at NYU. Coming up... On the media suffers a flare-up of doubt and self-examination, or at least Bob does. This is On the Media. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. So it's now a little over eight months since Election Day. We have come a long way together, haven't we? Well, you should have been in the office the day after. The mood was fraught, and our executive producer, Katya Rogers, saw an opportunity to offer listeners some ultra-OTM transparency at a moment when Brooke and I were at our most doubting. Here's how Katya introduced our weekly podcast extra on November 9th, 2016. 
Hi, everyone. This is Katia, executive producer of OTM. So as you can imagine, lots of feelings being felt here in the office Wednesday morning. Feelings uh, we didn't quite know what to do with. I thought if I were an OTM listener, what would I want to hear? I would want to hear Bob and Brooke talking through how they are feeling today and how they envisioned the direction of the show during the Trump presidency. So we went into the studio to hash that out. And here it is. So anyway, what happened last night made me think about what we've been doing the last couple of years, especially the last year, and what we ought to consider doing in the future. I don't think our role is to be Cassandra-in-chief or even consoler-in-chief. I think that our main role is to make what seems to have been invisible to us and everyone we know visible. We have to do an even better job of reporting and pull back, not entirely, of course, but to some degree from commentary. I'm not saying we extirpate it. It's part of our brand. We've always been transparent, and I want to continue that. I think we need to be more fair, and that means we have to talk to people that we have discounted. Do you think that we were unfair? With regard to the election, I think that we fell into the trap of everyone else. The focus was never on his supporters until the very end. It's clear to me that while we imagined ourselves speaking truth to power, and I suppose we did, we were also very much stuck within the echo chamber. And to the extent that our message was getting out beyond the non-Trump supporting community, it was probably dismissed as simply liberal boilerplate. I don't necessarily regret doing that because I think we repeatedly had to make a judgment whether the historic threat to our democracy and to our values was reason enough to veer away from kind of in-depth reporting on what made the electorate what it is. And that may be true. But actually, I think the bigger story that the press missed overall has been the quintessential slow-boiling frog situation. And that is that there's been a 30-some-year campaign of big lies, of demagogues in politics and in conservative media telling this ever-growing, more frustrated, more marginalized audience a number of things that are you know, objectively untrue. I think that happened and kind of softened the target for an opportunist demagogue like Donald Trump. 50% of the electorate believes that we are under siege from all sides and our economy and our society is being destroyed when, objectively speaking, <laughs> none of that's true. But it doesn't matter because the people who voted for Trump believe the collapse is underway. So I think that where the media failed was by letting the frog boil slowly to the point that the public, in a gigantic way, was misinformed. So what does that tell us about how to approach fairness? Are you being fair or unfair to your audience by reflexively throwing bones at ideas that you don't think have merit? What you describe 
is in no way how I describe fairness. The way that I intend it is simply to put more voices on the air, not to give them a free ride, not to shy away from disputing every assertion they might make that the facts disagree with, simply to make them present. And make us better informed. About who they are. Yeah. Uh, But I don't think these explanations are mutually exclusive. Well, I do. Because if we focus on the 30-year lie, we're having an argument about stuff that happened during the Nixon administrations and not stuff that we've ignored. You've brought it up a lot this year. It has undergirded many of our discussions. But I think that it will drag us into a very established narrative when we really have to find out what's going on now. Can we go mega transparent, Brooke? Yeah. Let's go mega transparent. Sure, go ahead. For the 16-year history of this show, we have had conversations and at our editorial meetings that the audience is not privy to about stories in which we're fighting for truth, justice in the American way, and we're trying to decide how to report them or whether to report them. And there is a term of art. And we haven't used it in years. Yeah, yeah. the term is, is it to Democracy Now? Democracy Now! is a longstanding radio show that its history is in public radio, not NPR, but public radio, and it is now broadcast on TV. It is a explicitly liberal, progressive bastion. And... The question that I think that we face is do we continue to go more in the direction that it takes, amp up the skepticism and outrage, or pull back and be, say, more dispassionate observers of the media scene and the political scene? I'm not sure if we can do both of those things. So this is where you feel we have gone during the the Trump campaign. Is that what you're saying? Yes, and thanks in large part to, you know, my insistence that we cover Trump not as a politician but as a historic threat, a potential menace to democracy. So, yeah, I mean, I've been pounding that message as as often as I can, and that crosses the line between journalism that we expect into a kind of activism. I don't think I ever mentioned Hillary Clinton's name during the whole course of the campaign, but um, I, and by extension the show, became an activist player in anti-Trumpism. So now what do we do? Now what do we do? Remember during the Bush administration, we had to find a framing device. We were unnerved. We didn't know what was going to happen, but that was politics. We were like, well, that's not our beat. And so then we came up with enabling condition. Enabling condition, free speech and privacy, all those things that enable the freedom of information and that enable journalism that were not, strictly speaking, media. Yeah, so we came up with the media frame. And then when Obama won in 08, we were like, hmm, what's our new frame? What's our discussion? What's it going to be? Really quickly turned to transparency, surveillance. What is our frame? What's it going to be? I feel like we're, we don't know. Well, I suspect that our media role, our function, will have to do with narratives and framing, constantly identifying and anatomizing those narratives of our colleagues in the uh, mainstream media and also those outside of it. One thing I think is going to be interesting is that We rely on historical context, right, to diffuse panic. Where's our historical precedent that makes us feel better? I don't know. I I don't know. Don't complain to me about Godwin's law anymore. Why? We don't 
have Hitler. But what happens if President Donald Trump does half the things he's promised to do? If you're going to bring out the, you know, the rhetorical heavy artillery, you do it in response to actual real things, not to his own rhetorical flourishes. We don't hate Hitler because he made ugly speeches. The political process is looking exactly like Weimar Germany, which was a nation that made a historically bad decision, catastrophic decision, based on exactly the same kind of fears and hatreds that have propelled Donald Trump into office. Now, whether that demagoguery turns into something deeply dark, I don't know. But, you know, I refuse to be put off the idea that the political forces aren't a direct parallel to uh, what got Hitler elected before he did a, you know, a single ugly act. And you have made that observation, I think, probably half a dozen times on the show. But we are past the phase of the election. I think that people will be listening to this discussion, our listeners, and they'll want, they'll say, Bob and Brooke, tell me how to feel. What should I do today? Hmm. Uh, well, speaking personally, I've, I'm afraid and, uh, and I'm ashamed and I'm angry. And as to what to do next, I don't know. But, uh, you know, I, I think Brooke and I, even though we've had this marriage encounter session, we fundamentally agree that on the media's role is to keep our finger on the pulse of the nation and the media's coverage of the events as dispassionately as we can without, without surrendering our commitment to truth and sanity and the Constitution and all that goes with it. And, you know, the question is, do we, do we try to approach our jobs as, as leaders of a movement for truth and justice, or do we just try to do our jobs as journalists covering journalism and let the rest sort itself out? Uh, I, I'm not sure we can do exactly both at the same time. I guess I would say I think we can do exactly both at the same time. Just shining a light gives people the information to pursue their goals. And I guess if I were talking to the listener's cat, uh, what I would say is simply, you know, you have a couple of choices. You can sit back and give way to panic and embrace all the, the terrible analogies, or we can simply keep our eyes open day by day and stay engaged. I mean, if you hate the outcome of this election, there is another one in two years that could change the Congress. This is about the American experiment and whether it fails. I mean, Krugman called America a failed state. That doesn't have to be. That doesn't have to be. The country is evenly divided. That means half of the nation agrees with you. So get everybody off their asses. Uh, you know, I hope that it's uh, some sort of clarion call. But, I, you know, I, what I most hope is that we are not all passengers on the ship of fools. What the f I don't know does what that, that mean, mean either. <laughs> what, What's does that the, mean? what does it mean? Why would you want to end on the line of we're all going to hell? Perhaps I misunderstood 
But if you wanted to know what I'm thinking right. and feeling and oh, what we should do, feeling. I have just told you. All right. Now, you can think it's ridiculous and hyperbolic, but you thought my warnings about Trump were ridiculous and hyperbolic. I did not. Yeah, we didn't. At some point, we, we are... have to reckon with what just happened last night. Well, don't mischaracterize me and what was in my mind. If I had felt that way, they wouldn't have been on the program. Well, I rest my case at Ship of Fools. Okay. And that wraps up the morning after. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, flash forward to this past Thursday. Kat makes us listen to that again and then turns on the mics. Okay, so that was a little more than eight months ago. We were roiling in doubt. This show is devoted to doubt, the value of doubt. And we decided to listen to this again, Bob, because you'd had an epiphany this week. You found yourself in doubt. (laughs) Yeah, well, not quite an epiphany, uh, because I think epiphanies are sudden. And this has been a gradual realization uh, based on, of all things, my own media behavior, my own media diet. And if you'll permit me to try to distill sure. our two positions that we just listened to, yours was to take the long view, not to be hysterical, not to be excessively self-righteous, and to provide our audience as much news reporting and context as we can. And I had a slightly different view. My view was, <laughs> oh, my God. We're doomed. We have to tell them how we're doomed. You know, something along those lines. And why? Because, as I said, I was angry, frightened, and ashamed. I thought and still do think that we are in a catastrophic historical political moment. And my impulse was not just to identify the problem but to somehow be part of the solution, right? So that that was where I was coming from that day. And then you were about to tell us about your media consumption? Yeah. And yeah, so here's what happened. Let, let me tell you how my media diet works. I get up in the morning and I read the New York Times, but I also look at Google News, which feeds me the stuff that I've most heavily read before, right? It knows your preferences and that gives you more and more of that. Well, during the campaign, I was a heavy reader of The Nation, of The Atlantic, of Huffington Post, of The Daily Beast, of all sorts of other sources that were kind of coming at the Trump campaign from my perspective, which is what the hell is going on? For the last eight months, I've been seeing these things come up on my Google News feed and seeing a provocative headline about some latest Trump administration outrage, and then not reading the story. Hmm. And then looking at, you know, another one from The Atlantic, which is one of the finest publications this country has to offer, and I haven't read that story either. And, you know, down the list, I'm like, why? Well, here's why. Because I knew what they were going to say. I'm not saying that they would have been unilluminating, but I thought that I was facing a foregone conclusion. And... What I read might have, you know, given me some sort of... uh, Validation. Validation. It may have fed my my rage and and sense of righteousness, but I wasn't going to learn anything new. But just eight months ago, I'm advocating for us to kind of stay the course, to 
stay the course. No, you are advocating for us to veer off the course onto the front of the movement, which we hadn't been before. Well, during the campaign. During the campaign, we were not, you know, screaming resist, resist, resist. There wasn't yet anything to resist. Well, I guess we we perceive how we did that differently. Well, because we both do a lot of stuff on this show, but your work is very much, I would say, characterized by taking the long view and tons of historical perspective. And mine is very much characterized by, oh my God, oh my God. So my panic and your level-headedness together created a certain vibe, which I think hasn't changed gigantically since the since the elections. But now, now, well, my convictions have changed not one whit, while my fear and my anger and my shame are as strong as they were in that, that very fraught conversation. I think that I should dial it back because I don't want our audience at some point to, to to lose interest in our reporting and our commentary because it's just a foregone conclusion for them too. How horrible would it be for my for my self righteousness to die at its own hands? <laughs> Your clear eyed vision or my impulse to say the sky is falling? What should we do? <laughs> Which way should we go? It sounds like you've turned a corner. I've turned a corner because I realized that the potential toll of being self-righteous. It sounds like you don't want to read someone like you. That's exactly it. Do I want to listen to me? Uh, Increasingly, no. (laughs) You know, probably my favorite tweet of yours in this period is when somebody tweeted, oh, Brooke and Bob, uh, please don't die, we need you, or something. And you responded, do you remember? A a wrong addressee, please forward to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was a good one. Well, Bob Garfield, thank you very much. Brooke Gladstone, thank you very much. (laughs) That's it for this week's show on the media. is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from John Hanrahan and Jane Vaughn, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. My name is Carl Glocken. And this is a ship of fools. I'm a fool. And you'll meet more fools as we go along. This tub is packed with them. Emancipated ladies, ball players, lovers, dog lovers, ladies of joy, tolerant Jews, dwarfs, all kinds. And who knows 
If you look closely enough, you may even find yourself on board. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation and the listeners of WNYC Radio.